coming up today on In Brief with Law in Order. Join David Kirstens, Digital Forensics Lead, and Robin Kidd, Head of Managed Document Review, as they give a brief lesson in digital forensics for dummies. Get an insight into the buzzwords and what forensic experts actually do. David also opens a window on the world of investigations, including some tales from the trenches. We're Law in Order, the leader in end-to-end document and digital solutions to the legal profession, providing expert litigation support. How would you deal with a million documents in a discovery? How do law firms that run lean really operate? What challenges should you expect during an e-discovery interstate or internationally? We're here to help you find out. We'll speak to experts both in the legal profession and within law in order, looking at case studies, real-life examples and trends. We're Law in Order and this is In Brief. Thanks for joining us today. My name's Robin Kidd. I'm the head of the Managed Document Review line here at Law & Order. And today I'm here with David Kearsons of their forensics team. David, how about you tell us how you came to be at Law & Order and your role here? Thank you, Robin. I've been with Law & Order for nine months now uh, as the digital forensic lead. Prior to joining Law & Order, I've worked in investigations for over 10 years and digital forensics for about five or six years. And my prior roles in digital forensics were with Victoria Police and then with the Australian Taxation Office, which involved work with ATO, but also work with whole of government as well. So with that, I come with experience in terms of doing government investigations for digital forensics, but also going out and doing warrants and on-site visits. So forensics is one of the buzzwords that's been flying around for a bit of a while now, but I'm not sure everyone knows exactly what it is. So I thought we could have a bit of a chat today about forensics for dummies. I'm happy to play the role of the dummy in this instance. So look, really, isn't forensics just a lot of copy and paste? Unfortunately, the perception is that, yes, you can just copy and paste data. So digital forensics is basically it's just creating an exact copy of data that contains all the, the metadata behind that data as well. David, can I just stop you there? Metadata, yet another of the buzzwords. Yes. Can you explain what that means? Unfortunately, yes, forensics is full of buzzwords, probably self-created. Uh, so metadata is basically data about data. So in simplistic terms, if you take a photo with your phone, the metadata on that photo itself would include things like GPS data, type of phone, the model of the iPhone, uh, whether a flash was used, how big the file is, when it was taken. So there's a lot of data that you can potentially get, but on the flip side, it could also just, metadata could simply just be this Word document was created on this particular date and it was modified on this date. So uh, there's a lot of variation in terms of what is available through metadata. So it just depends on what avenue of investigation that you're following. Sorry to have interrupted you there, but so effectively you're saying that it's not copy and paste, Forensics is about collecting the data and the metadata in a forensically sound way so that it can be used for what purpose? I guess the ultimate aim is we're making sure that if for any reason the matter goes to court, uh, the evidence that we've collected is admissible and it's repeatable as well. So we'll always have a snapshot of an electronic device from that particular point in time and anything that we've done since then, we can always revert back to that original forensic image in terms of the investigation. So everything we can do is repeatable and explainable. So I've got my laptop here. Now I've got my password on my laptop. What can you get from it? If we're just talking about a standard Windows password, Forensics 101, uh, you'd take the computer apart, you'd take the hard drive out of the laptop, 
he connected up to a forensics laptop using a write blocker. To explain another term, so a write blocker, it basically just means that no changes can be made to that hard drive. So it can read the hard drive, but it doesn't do any writes to the hard drive. So once that's connected up, I'd be able to access all the files on it and the password wouldn't be required. So I had emails in my mailbox. Now, I've been pretty crafty, I think, and I've hard deleted them. Can you get them back or have they gone forever? It depends on the situation, but in most cases, those files can be retrieved. Realistically, when you delete something, all it's doing is saying that where that file currently is, is space that can be used in the future. So the dependency is on how often that hard drive is used, how often you're putting new data onto it, on whether that data can be recovered. But in majority of cases, it can be recovered. So what about data in, and I'm using inverted commas for those who are obviously listening in, the cloud? What can you get about that? So as long as we've provided access to the data that's in the cloud, we can do, say for example, something like a Gmail or Outlook 365. We can do a collection of the full email data for that. Um, and then that can be containerized and then processed. So, in terms of cloud, it's not the same sort of forensic process because you're not dealing with a physical machine in front of you. It's more of a best case scenario where as long as you're going through and noting all the details that you followed in terms of doing that capture, that's how it's becoming forensically sound because you can repeat the process. More and more work's being carried out on the go. So you've also got people who are sending work emails from their phones. You've got people sending WhatsApps, WeChats, all these other things. Now, I know that WhatsApps and iMessages certainly are encrypted end-to-end, -end, so surely they're safe. In terms of that, so as long as we can access the phone, so if it has a PIN code and we don't know the PIN code, uh, it just depends on the model on whether we can bypass that particular PIN. But once we're inside the phone, typical applications like WhatsApp, uh, WeChat, iMessage, Skype, those sort of applications that are used quite regularly, those chats can be recovered. So they can use particular algorithms using the forensic software to recover those chats. Uh, the encryption is end-to-end -end in terms of transmission, but on the device it's not encrypted. So that's how the uh, information can be obtained. Okay, so now you've got all the secrets in my laptop and my emails and now my WhatsApp and WeChat as well. That's slightly concerning. Um, what else might people think is safe that forensics can get into? I guess just to alleviate people's fears, I can't access someone's mobile phone that's elsewhere. Um, you know, we're not doing remote hacking into people's devices. If you're able to provide us access to a device, uh, obviously that does make it a lot simpler in terms of doing the collection. We can do off-site collections, we can do remote collections. But what I would say is that anything that you do put onto a device or anything you do send to someone, you obviously need to be aware that that can be accessed. But if we look beyond that, in terms of forensics, typically people would deal with things like e-discovery, and that would be looking for these particular documents, get me the documents off a laptop. Um, forensics is a lot more about trying to paint a picture around those documents. So trying to identify, let's just say you gave me a laptop and said, this particular person is leaking IP to an external party, can you look it into it for me? So then what we'd do is with the forensic image, we'd go through and we'd try and work out the story around those documents. So rather than just saying, yes, the IP documents are on this laptop, well, how are they on that laptop? Have they been downloaded uh, from a network share? Have they been emailed to people? Have they emailed it to other people? 
can you even prove that that person was at the laptop at the time? So, you know, you'd be looking at things like internet history, login history as well. So have they used their user credentials? What's happened? Like, it's really just painting that picture around the particular data. So yes, it's this person's laptop. Yes, they logged in, but prove something else. So maybe they access their internet banking or their personal email within one minute of doing this particular file. So then you can place that person behind the keyboard. This gets into uh, leading into the sort of the fraud and investigations kind of space. You know, some of the more cloak and dagger aspects of forensics. Obviously, when you're doing any discovery, maybe a more standard one, you've got employees of the company who are quite rightfully involved in certain transactions, etc., and you'll go and image their laptops, etc. What about when you're doing investigations into, say, workplace relations or fraud? Obviously, you don't want to flag to the person being investigated that they are being investigated. How do you how do you deal with that? So, um, with cooperation from the client, we can do covert collections as well. So, in that situation, if we're talking about work computers, uh, we could come in outside of hours, and we would literally take the computer apart, take out the hard drive, do the imaging, and then put everything back into place. So, there's no sign that we were there and we've done that collection. Uh, we can also get involved with then doing ongoing collections. So yes, at that point in time, if they're doing an investigation on someone and trying to identify their patterns, we could actually go in outside of ours across multiple days to try and compare what's happened on a computer from Monday through to Friday through to the following week as well. So that is something we are able to do. Uh, we do have the resources to work outside of ours and make sure we do basically not leave a trace. So. When they turn on their computer, they wouldn't be any the wiser in terms of whether someone's used a computer or not. So you put the biscuit crumbs back in the keyboard again, making sure they know the sticky fingerprints are still yeah. there. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. Matches my yeah. desk to a T. <laughs> so we've talked about some of the covert collections. Now, surely in your past life before Law & Order, you've had some pretty good tales from the trenches. Yeah. All the juicy details. What are a couple of examples you can give us to give everybody listening a bit of an idea of what forensics can do in a bit of a more real-life context? Yeah, in very general terms. So when I was working for Victoria Police, they came in with some computers that they'd collected from a warrant uh, where they hadn't involved forensics in the first instance. I started doing a review of those computers and they said to us that they'd had a chat to the person, they said that everything that was relevant was just on this particular computer. So they just seized that computer and left everything else. So when I started looking into it, you could see that there was a lot of references to external hard drives that matched the file names that you'd expect for this particular type of investigation. Following on from that, we organised a further warrant, went back, and then we found about another 20 devices that were around the house. Uh, which contained data that was relevant to the investigation. So if we hadn't collected those additional 20 devices, there would have been nothing that would have linked the person to the crime. However, with that additional collection, then we're able to work out that they were directly involved with it. So I suppose that would be a flag to everyone to get forensic involved as early as possible to identify where relevant data sources might be yeah. um, and what else to look for rather than just it's all on one laptop. Yeah. And, you know, the reality is if you do walk away from that initial collection without getting everything, there's no guarantee that any of that data will be there when you get back. So Certainly you, you have to get the house it. down. Yeah, yeah. So you definitely have to get it right the first time. Some other cases I've had as well, working uh, within government, there was a site that we went to in terms of they were growing particular illegal plants. And we, we got to the site, it had all been completely cleared up. 
So there was nothing to do from a forensic point of view. There was no electronic devices there. Um, so we just assisted in terms of going around and doing site maps of the, where these particular crops were. So throughout the warrant, there wasn't really anything from a forensics perspective. But then at some point later in the day, a panel van actually drove up to the site and they saw that we're all there, quickly turned around and fanged it down the road. So the police jumped in the car, chased after them, ended up having a chat to them and they just said, oh, you know, we took the wrong turn. But the police were quick enough to seize their GPS device and say that they needed to review that. So with the GPS device, they'd actually used it for every single site that they'd been to. So we were able to identify about 30 other sites that were involved in this particular crime. And without that GPS device, we never would have got it. Uh, obviously, they would have been none the wiser that putting in these addresses. Uh, you know, we got, I think it was about 120 addresses that were part of this GPS device in the car. So sometimes something that you would never think would actually be fruitful in terms of investigation can provide a full picture. Excellent. Purely by luck. <laughs> yeah. It's not what we see, David. It's by <laughs> skill and expertise, not luck. Yeah. So you said that, you know, sometimes it's the, the material or the data that you don't expect to find that could prove really fruitful. Can you give us an example, just to finish up, of useful data that you wouldn't really expect? One good example is in terms of drones, which are obviously used on a much greater basis these days and used quite widely. And basically, within a, a drone, it's similar to a GPS device. You know, anywhere that they are going, they do track the GPS locations. But they do also have a lot more advanced tracking in terms of things like how hard the um, turbines have to work for it to remain at a particular height. In terms of those, I've heard of investigations where they've been able to identify drop locations. So they use quite a bit in terms of dropping in things into prisons or drug drops or things like that, uh, where they have actually been able to identify the exact point that the package has been dropped because the turbines haven't had to work as hard as soon as they've dropped the item, suddenly it goes quite high and then it levels out and then comes back. Things like that where electronics are getting a lot more involved there are different avenues that people are exploring in terms of things like car forensics as well, vehicle forensics. Some of the newer cars, when you do a forensic analysis on them, you know, you can identify how many people were sitting in the car. You can identify what gear they were at particular times, where the windows were open, which doors were opened, all these sort of things. So when you, when you are taking a car in to get serviced, they're literally just downloading the data from the computer that can contain everything about what you've done. You know, even things like mobile phones, when you accept that there's the Bluetooth connection, in your mind, really, you're just syncing up your phones so that you can take calls and you can look at your call history. But in some instances, a lot more of the mobile phones actually being captured on the device in the car, which can then be used in the future as well in terms of, you know, potential messages that might have been deleted since using the car. Okay, so that was a slightly terrifying dummy's guide to forensics there. Thanks for your time today, David. Excellent. Thanks, Robin. Thanks for listening to this episode of Law & Order's podcast, In Brief. Law & Order is the leading supplier of end-to-end -end document and digital solutions to the legal profession. We provide expert litigation support through cost-effective document production, expert managed document review and discovery management, and e-trial and e-arbitration solutions. If there's a topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please let us know at sales at lawinorder.com. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please tell your friends and colleagues and leave a review on iTunes. We hope you can join us again for the next episode of In Brief. Until then, thank you for listening.